It's Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 to 11. Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 to 11. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have a reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost, loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is the word of God. That is a huge passage, and um, I will not cover all of that today. Uh, We're going to focus on just those first couple verses, especially this odd thing that says, um, look out for the dogs. (laughs) That's what he says, all right? Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. That's what I'm going to talk about today. I'm going to unpack those two verses for you. Um, Some of you are wondering, what does that mean? Um, Just uh, before I get into that, it's been a little while. We're not going, it feels like we're going into a new series, but we're actually jumping back into an old series. Um, Back in July through September, we did 12 weeks out of uh, this chapters 1 and 2 of the book of Philippians. And we called this series the Koinonia of Grace. And um, Koinonia is a word, it's a, it's a Greek word, which, I mean, it's, it's, a little, it's not exactly easy to translate. It means something between partnership and fellowship. It's not just a fellowship we just hang out together. It's that we have a partnership which we contend to each other. And we looked at some extraordinary and beautiful things about unity, about bearing up with one another, how Jesus did not grasp after equality with God, but instead he laid himself down and made himself nothing in the form of a servant. These are some of the things that we looked at. We even looked at this extraordinary passage about how Paul talks about um, how Paul talks about Timothy. And I, I shared with you how that's a picture of, of how from father to son, this movement 
of, of gospel unity, this koinonia of grace, it, 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 it flows throughout history and really defeats, the, defeats all the selfishness and pride, which is just so normal in, in our lives. I mean, so these are some of the things that we, we, we talked about. Um, and so I know it seems a little bit of a jarring pickup here. And, uh, you know, the pastors, you know, we, we got together and we, we talked about this. We, we, we knew we were going to take this break. Um, in general, in general, I don't know if this is more information you want to know. In general, we, we, we try to keep our series roughly not much longer than about 10 to 12 weeks or so um, because we just think your minds just need a break, okay? And, uh, um, um, but we, we, we want to come back. These last uh, two chapters, especially a lot of this material in chapter 3, and then there are certain verses in chapter 4, they, they are some of the most profound passages in the Bible. And um, so... I, I hope I'm up for it, um, for preaching to you. So let's, without all that, um, with all that said, now let's get into this passage. Um, this crazy passage says, look out for dogs and for evildoers. And, we, and, and says, we are, we are circumcision. I mean, what does that mean? That we are the circumcision. He didn't, he didn't say we're circumcised. He says we are the circumcision. That is such a strange kind of talk. And um, let's get into that today in a message that I've entitled Depravity and the Problem of Righteousness. Depravity and the Problem of Righteousness. You know, it's kind of big, highfalutin words. I'll unpack that for you. Um, three parts. Part one, circumcision and confidence in the flesh. Circumcision. and So I'm just going to expound that in this first part. All right? what, what does that mean? Part two, it points to a very profound problem in human life, and it's the biggest problem there is. It's uh, the problem of depravity. Depravity, for those of you who don't, it's, it's a huge word that basically means everything is spoiled by sin. That's what it means. Even the things that we think is good, is there's something rotten underneath it. Deprav depravity is connected to something that I like to call easy external righteousness. Easy external religiosity. Right? So that's part two. Depravity and easy external religiosity. That's really what this passage is about. And part three, uh, glorying in Christ. It says that we glory in Christ, not in our own confidence in, what, in our flesh, but we glory in Christ. And I want to talk a, a bit about that to close my message today. Um, Part one, circumcision and confidence in the flesh. What this is you, are you talking about, Paul? <laughs> who are the dogs? I, I mean, who even talks like that? I mean, in, in our day today, uh, you know, I, I don't know if you realize this, but um, we live in a at least you're supposed to be polite to other people. We, li we, we, we put on airs that we call ourselves very tolerant, and most people think that if you are a good person, you are nice to other people, and you don't go around calling them something like dogs. Um, but, uh, but here he is. This is the Bible, okay? It is God's word, and God apparently did not think that um, it's, it was, you know, it was, it was so bad to actually stick this in the Bible um, to make it his word. Um, in order to understand this passage, let me ask you to uh, go to a, a, another place in the Bible because I think this will be somewhat illuminating here. Go to Galatians, Galatians chapter 1. 
Anyone got, got a pew Bible? What, what, what page number is that when you get to it? I, I should have uh, gift that to you. That would make it a little bit easier. Anyone looking at the pew Bible? No? Huh? Huh? 972. Thank you for that, Joseph. All right. Page 972. Um, of course, if you have a smartphone, then you, you know, page numbers. What is that? That's so primitive. Okay. Um, Galatians chapter 1. And, I, I'm, and the reason I want, I, I'm, I'm taking you here is because this issue of circumcision comes up repeatedly in, in Scripture. I, I'm talking the New Testament. I mean, most people understand. So um, just for those of you who may not know, what is circumcision? I mean, you, know, you all probably know this, but uh, <laughs> nowadays I don't assume anything, okay? Uh, a, a circumcision is when the foreskin of a boy's penis is cut off when he is a baby. You know, basically, it's pretty much right after he's born, a few days after he's born. I think traditionally, and, and, and it was done originally um, among Hebrews. Um, it's, a, it's a Jewish religious ritual rite. And it's traditionally done in the eighth day. And it is to set this boy apart. And it, it isn't just a sign for the boy, it's a sign for the whole family, a sign for the people, because if there was a promise done many, many years ago, because all the, the fourth father of all the, the Jews, the Hebrews, is Abraham. And Abraham was chosen by God for God to say, your family, your family will be my specially loved and chosen people. And through your children, um, the blessing to the whole world will come. In other words, salvation to the whole world will come through your, your offspring. And... Um, this is the promise that goes all the way back. It goes all the way back to Genesis 12 through 24 or so. And, um, and it was given to Abraham when he was a really old man. <laughs> and he had a wife, and she was barren. Um, that's the old word for what we would call infertile. And she couldn't have a baby. And so God promised this to a man who had a wife who couldn't have a baby, and then he didn't fulfill this promise till they got really old. So just to make sure Abraham and his wife really believed this promise, he waited till they were so old, there was no way it could be anything except by God's love and promise. So just think about that. I want you to just think a little bit. It's not just um, a religious idea. Every time you meet a Jewish person, if you, every time you meet a Jewish person, if God did not fulfill that promise, all those people don't exist, okay? And there's so many things in our culture that have to do with Hebrew, you know, that's, you don't even know it, but there's so many things in our culture that say break, um, Jewish humor, Hollywood. Uh, some of the best stand-up comedians are Jewish guys and Jewish gals, all right? And so... Um, just, just, a, just, just a little something to think about. Okay, now, in the New Testament, in the, the gospel, Jesus Christ is crucified. He is risen. Um, the gospel is going forward and saying that if you trust that this person is the Son of God, and when he died upon the cross, he wasn't just dying. He was acting as the Lamb of God to whose blood would atone for our sins for everybody who would believe, both Jews and Gentiles. Hmm? If you believe that, your sins will be forgiven 
you will belong to God and you will be with him forever and ever. That's the gospel. So this message is going out. And right when it goes out, all the people who first believe it are Jews. And in fact, um, it doesn't really quite make sense to anybody who's not Jewish because it's steeped in this history and it's coming out of a set of promises which go all the way back to Abraham. It's just that even back then, the Jews, including the ones who are first being called Christians and they didn't call themselves Christians. I mean, think about this. They don't call themselves Christians. They're just Jews and they believe that this Jewish guy is the Messiah and the Messiah rose from the dead and he's the Lamb of God and anybody who believes in him is saved from their sins except that it just so happens that everybody who believes in him up to this point in time is Jewish. Okay? And then this is the way the history works out. So thousands of people are coming to Christ and they're mostly in Israel. And then there's a guy named Stephen, who is one of the early deacons, and he gives this completely um, offensive sermon that tells the Jews that um, because you resisted God's plan, um, God essentially rejected you as an ethnic group. And as an ethnic group, the ethnicity will not be the basis of your salvation. It can't be. It never was, actually. They didn't get it. And this thing was so offensive, they, they killed him. And a persecution started in Jerusalem. Then the Jews scattered. They just, they, they, of course, I mean, you know, we, that's just normal. Uh, they, they, they fled the city. And some of them um, settled into another major city called Antioch. And there they began to share the gospel. And there, um, the, the, there are, so, so far, there are Jews who speak only Aramaic. And then there are Jews who speak Greek, which they call the Hellenists. And then these guys who are more the Hellenists, they moved to um, Antioch, and they started sharing the gospel with non-Jews, Gentiles. And they started getting saved. And a whole new church started to arise that weren't filled with Jews, okay? And so this is an extraordinary thing. Now, what it did was it set off a, a, um, a very serious problem inside the church. And that is this. In order to truly be saved, um, do you have to be circumcised? And so, the whole, if this is in, in any way unclear, the, the, there's a book that's dedicated to this whole question. And that is the letter to the church of Galatia, the Galatians. Okay, the, we call it Galatians. And um, so chapter 1, if you're there, here we go. That's a bit of a, a mouthful intro. Chapter 1, verse 6. This is what Paul says. And I want you to understand that when Paul writes this letter to this church, in almost all the letters he, he, he writes these nice flowing words at the beginning, not so to the church of Galatia, right? To the Galatians, he is just ticked from the get-go. Mm -hmm. And this is what he says right at the beginning. Chapter 1, verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. That's what he puts it, a different gospel. So there are people in the Galatian church that says, you must believe in Jesus and be circumcised. Believe in Jesus and be circumcised. 
If you're circumcised and you believe in Jesus, of course, then, then you're good. Paul says this is a different gospel. This is a different gospel. And here's what he says. Verse 7. Not that there is actually another one. There is another one. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel, so this is what they're saying, if it's, you know, one of us, you know, the, the real apostles like me, or some we, and he's talking about the other apostles, we, you know, the really sound pastors, or even an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. I, I want you to uh, feel the, okay, we, 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 we don't even, it's hard for us to, to feel the weight of this. Let, let me say, it. the word accursed is anathema. And in English, that word anathema means something that is so deeply offensive, it deserves to go to hell. That's what anathema means. So let me say it this way. If we or an angel should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him go to hell. That's what he's saying. Anathema. Let him go to hell. And then if it wasn't really clear that this is really what he means, as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let me just say it again. Let him go to hell. Okay? That's Paul's understanding of the gospel. Let me put it to you this way. That's God's understanding of the gospel. That is the gospel. Nobody makes the gospel clearer in the Bible than Paul. Not even Jesus. <laughs> right? It's pretty interesting. Um, that's Paul's, and this is right smack in the, it, it's, it's in Romans, it's in Galatians, it's also in Philippians, it's in book after book. Okay, so now let's get back to um, Philippians 3. So look out for the dogs. The dogs are um, people that spread untruths that carry us away from God. That's what the dogs are. Who's he talking? Who are the dogs? Um, look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. You know what he's saying? He's saying there are people who are taking away the gospel, and they're saying you have to be circumcised and believe in Jesus. That's what he means by mutilate the flesh. According to Paul, they're evildoers. They're dogs. Wow. Wow. And, by, and so this is a bit of a play on words. Um, in a lot of, the, uh, of the, the Jewish writings of the time, when there was, a, there was incredible disdain for um, pagan um, Gentiles and their religions and their doctrines. So Jews who, who have the real truth, they know the real God, they have the right, right uh, law. I mean, think about it. You live in a society... When those people over there, you know, they do these weird, you know, they sacrifice, they, they, they actually have a practice of sacrificing their children. Okay. Those people over here, they go into a temple and sleep with a bunch of prostitutes so that their crops will turn out better. These people here like to have ten wives and they know that, they, you know, they sell off their children 
into slavery. I mean, they do these things. It's normal. It's utterly normal. <laughs> and then there are the Jews. Then there are the Jews. They have a law. They're not relativists. And they do ritual cleansing. They, they wash their hands a certain way before they eat. All these other disgusting people don't. How do you like that? So how would you feel if all the people that, you, that live inside your city, you go eat a meal, and then you're thinking, hey, you're the guy who goes to the temple and sleeps with a prostitute, and you never wash your hands before you eat, and we're going to dip our hands in that same food, right? Right. That's, that's really wonderful, isn't it? I'm, try, I'm not trying to be gross here. I'm trying to let you feel how Jews felt when they were with all these other pagan Gentiles. So Jews called all these people who had all these gross practices dogs. That's what they called them. And then you know what Paul does? He flips it on his ear and he calls the Jews who are scrupulous with their religious practices, and then says, you have to do the circumcision, oh, and believe in Jesus. He calls them dogs. That's what he, he flips that on his ear. And then he says this, we are the circumcision. So that's what I said, we're circumcised, this is the Jewish attitude, we're circumcised, they're not. We keep law, we belong to God, they're immoral. They're lost. But he actually says, no. This is really strange. I mean, I really want you to know, completely strange he's saying. Paul is writing to the Philippian church. The Philippian church is filled with Gentiles. Probably every, every Gentile Christian in there, I mean, there's probably Jews, and they're, they're, the, the men are circumcised. And then there are Gentiles. They're not circumcised. They're all Christians. They all believe in Jesus. By the way, that's when um, they started calling them Christians in when the gospel went to Antioch. So until the, the gospel crossed a Jewish, Jewish, it stopped being this Jewish ritual thing. It stopped being this ethnocentric thing. That's when they started calling everybody Christians because it was about Christ, not about being Jewish. And Paul says, so he's saying this. You know all you Gentiles, all you Philippian Gentile Christians? We're the circumcision. <laughs> it's, it's really weird. It's like, like pointing to a person and a room full of people, women, of course, they're not circumcised. Men, all the Gentiles, they're not circumcised. And he's saying, you're the circumcision. We're the circumcision. That's what he's saying. And what does he mean by that? He's now taking this term of circumcision, and he's saying that we've crossed a line. We're the ones who are the real people of God. Not whether you cut off a piece of skin, a piece of flesh, but we have had our whole body of life of, of filled with our sin. God has cut that off from us through Jesus Christ. And he has accepted us. That's the real circumcision. That's the real circumcision. And he goes on to say, For we are the circumcision 
And we're the ones who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. And we do not put confidence in the flesh. And this word flesh, I want to say a little something. When Paul is using this word flesh, I mean, there's so many layers of, of what it means. Um, I've been in this church for a while, and every time this word flesh comes up, I, I, I try to explain it because it's just, it's confusing. Because Paul is confusing. <laughs> I mean, look what all the energy, I just, I just took 20 minutes of great energy to explain this to you. Um, but although, after I unpack it, it's not really that hard to understand, is it? But until it's unpacked, it, it, it's a bit, it is mysterious. When Paul says we do not put confidence in the flesh, he's saying we don't put confidence in doing things to our body like circumcision and thinking now, now we belong to God. People who put confidence in the flesh see that if you just do something on the outside to your body as a piece of ritual religion, now you're good with God. If you do external things, then you're good with God. And Paul says, heck no. No. That cannot be true. That is not true. Because no Jew, even a Jew, cannot be saved through circumcision. No way. So that's why he says, if the Jews demand that the Gentiles also must be circumcised, he's saying, then that's, that, that corrupts the gospel itself. No. Here's how we're saved. We put our faith in Jesus. And Jesus cuts off from us all our wickedness and our old, he calls it, body of sin and our heart of rebellion. That's the real circumcision. That's part one. All right? Let me go to part two of my message. Okay. Some of you are thinking... I'm going to talk about depravity and easy external religious righteousness. Um, what is this about, Pastor? Um, I never got circumcised. All the ladies are going, oh, I never got circumcised. I'm not going to get circumcised. And um, why all this energy about circumcision? It's not about the act of circumcision itself that Paul is getting worked up. It's the principle underneath. There's a principle underneath. And this is some, a trap that many, many people fall into. It's, and it's easy to fall into because it's kind of like the default mode of the human mind. And the default mode of the human mind is so wrong. And it's so wrong, and it's hard for us to get that it's wrong because it feels so normal. But we all know that in one way or another, I mean, if you're in, even just to have a shred of honesty, that there's something not right about you. Something about the way you think, the way you feel, even the things that you want and desire. It comes up in, in, in all kinds of different ways. It comes up in the fact that you're married to a woman for 20 years, and you love her, but deep down you can't help but still have like you know, want to have a fling with that 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 other woman, you know, in the in the in the in the you know five cubicles down. I mean, and you know that that's wicked, but it's you can't help it. It's like that. <laughs> you know that we should care about the poor, but anytime you see a certain kind of poor person, you're just like, I don't care. <laughs> I don't care, and I don't want that person near me. 
and I sure as heck don't want to part with any of my money because I work really hard for it, and that guy, I don't know. Maybe he's just a drug addict. We're not supposed to say that or think that, but we do. We do. And I'm just giving you, that's just two. <laughs> and we're all like this. Maybe there's one or two that's not, and then you're wonderful. Okay, but at least wonderful on that point, then you're probably horrible on some other thing. That's depravity. What Paul is saying is, this is what's really wrong with us. <laughs> you can never fix it by cutting off the foreskin of a penis off a baby. Heck no. Are you kidding? That's really what he's saying. The real problem is this. We have to be deeply changed all the way down. And it takes a miracle. It takes supernatural miracle. It is not anything we are capable of doing. That's really what he's saying. That's why salvation has to be by faith alone, not by our works. If you could do it, then we would do it. And then we would just do it, and then we wouldn't need a miracle. But that's not true. That's not real. And let me tell you something else. This, it's, it gets even worse. Now, I'm going to just give you a little bit of a preview. He, in this passage, he says, um, we glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And you're like, okay, pastor, you said you were going to just talk about this. Okay, the rest of the passage, and the, that's why I had it read today. The rest of the passage, then Paul goes on to say, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I actually have more. And then he goes and lists this resume of how he has done all the right religious things. His righteousness, he's basically just saying, if you think you could put confidence in the things that you can do to show that you're a good person, I'm better than you. That's really what he's saying. <laughs> I have more reason than you. I'm better than you. And then the rest of the passage is basically saying, but this stuff is garbage. I have every reason to think I'm better than you. But all the reasons that I have, all my religious things that I've ever done, everything I've ever done to say that I'm a good person, I'm a righteous person, I should be accepted by God, that stuff is garbage. It's just, ah, it's nothing. Actually, the word is not garbage. The word is, is, is I think the right translation would be S-H-I-T. It's, the, I consider it rubbish. That's the way. But actually, I consider it, shh, you know, you know what I'm saying. That's really what he's saying. Right? I mean, you need to understand that word. That is a very, it's a crude word that he's saying. Why is he so dramatic? He's trying to defeat this default bias that we have. If I do good things, then I'm a good person, right? Paul says, no. Actually, and this is what I mean by depravity and the problem of external religious righteousness. He's saying, there's a set of people. Oh, well, of course we're supposed to believe in Jesus, because that's the right doctrine, right? But there's a set of people that says, if you do the good things, 
you believe the right things and you do these things, and then those things, that's, that's why you're a good person. They're dogs. Really what he's saying is this. Actually, human beings are so profoundly lost that even the things that we do that are good, we use them in such a way to make our, to prop ourselves up as our own saviors and to think that we're good people. Even our righteousness is, there's something really rotten inside of it. So that there's no way even your righteousness. Let me, let me put it to you a little bit differently. I, I, this is a really big thing I'm trying to say, and I'm going to say more about this next week, okay? because it's such a big point. Um, let, me, let me just say it as straight as I can. There are many people today that think that Christians, um, for believing that you can only be saved by having faith in Jesus, are the most intolerant, arrogant people that there are. The reason they think that is because they believe that if you do good things, then you're a good person. And then if you do those good things, you're a good person. And then when you stand before God, how can God send good people to hell? The answer is, he never does. Because God is utterly just. He never sends good people to hell. And there are people that we call good people who do good things. Of course, many, many of them who are not Christians. In fact, I regularly meet non-Christians who are better people than Christians. This used to deeply bother me when I was a young man. And I meet non-Christians who do lots of good things, more good things than the Christians. And I know that the Bible says these people are going to be saved and are saved, and these people are hell-bound unless they get saved. I mean, just because a person doesn't believe in Jesus now, of course, you know they can. And for so many people, that is so offensive. Why is it so offensive? Because I do good things. You don't. I'm a non-Christian. You're a Christian. So because you're a Christian, you believe in Jesus, you're going to go to heaven. And I'm going to go to hell. What the heck are you talking about? That's how they think. And of course, of course, of course, that makes sense. But it's wrong. They don't know. And one day they're going to stand before a holy God. Holy means absolutely righteous and pure. And then they're going to say, God, I did this good thing. They're going to show their good righteousness. I did this thing. Okay, in this passage, he's talking about circumcision. But whatever it is, I mean, he has a whole list. Hebrew of Hebrews, born of Benjamin, blah, blah, blah. I did all these things. So he said, I have a better resume than you. People are going to get before a holy God. They're going to put their righteous resume before God and say, God, didn't I do this? And you say, oh, yeah, yeah, you did that, but you only did that for yourself. Or you only did that because, you know, that was the minimum thing. You never cared about me. You never cared about justice. The day you gave that, you know, $5 to that homeless person, you, you did it. You had like five ounces of compassion, but you had, you know, it was like 5% compassion. 95% was just to make yourself feel better. The day you gave that, you know, that you went out of your way, I mean, you, you even really, really went out of your way. You actually volunteered at a homeless shelter 
and you spent your whole day there. You spent your whole day there. Okay, 90% of it was you actually had compassion on those people, but the other 10% of it was just guilt. That's it. That's all it was. It was just guilt. You just felt guilty. That's it. So it was about you. And when that righteousness is actually like the, all the, the external of it is taken off, and you can actually see it for what it is, people realize, oh gosh, I don't deserve to be with God. He's holy and righteous. He's really righteous. Have you ever been around somebody who's actually righteous? No, nobody's purely righteous, right? But let's just put it this way. Someone that you know is clearly right, more righteous than you? <laughs> I mean, you're hanging out with somebody. I've been around, okay, I'm just a, an example. Um, I named my daughter after Beth Kidd, this woman who does inner city ministry in Boston. I mean, she loves the most broken people. And when she talks about them, she's talking about people she deeply loves. She doesn't do it out of guilt. She doesn't do it out of like some weird necessity. She does it out of love for them and out of love for Jesus. Let me tell you something. When I'm next to her, I feel dirty. I feel that I'm not worthy to be around her. That's a person. That's not God. And when the most holy one you stand before that judge. And then you put your righteousness resume before, oh my goodness. You're going to know if that's all you got, you're going to go to hell. It's a hard message I'm telling you today. That's the truth. All our friends, whether you're inside the church or outside the church, who just can't accept this, I, I actually feel one of the things about trying to love non-Christians is just, like, I, what they think about us is so reasonable from their perspective. <laughs> and we need to understand that when Christians, if you Christians ever look down on non-Christians for thinking that about us, that's crazy. That's crazy. What we believe from their perspective is absolutely nuts, okay? But it's true. It's deep. That's the problem with depravity. We all want some easy doable righteousness. Stick that on my resume, stand before God. I'm good, aren't I? No. Let me close with my message. We're the circumcision. And we glory in Christ and worship him by the Spirit. We don't worship him by, I hope none of you will come to church and go, I'm a Christian. I do the Christian thing. I'm going to go do my Christian minimal religion, and that's why I'm a Christian, and that's why I'm here. Do you, if you do that, do you know that you're just doing circumcision? You're actually coming to church with sin. That's what you're doing. You're actually coming with your legalism and your circumcision attitude, and you're not coming to worship God. You're coming to do your little piece of religiosity, external fleshly righteousness. That's what you're doing. I'm not just, I'm not trying to point to you. I, I've done it. I've done it so many times. I've done it more often than you. Do you know how many times I've come to church? I have slept, fallen asleep on every preacher that I've ever sat under. I am not kidding. 
I am not making that up. So if you fall asleep on me, I'm like, whatever. I guess God didn't, you know. But, and I have shown up many, many Sundays that way. But it says here, we worship by the Spirit of God. I mean, we even need God to worship. And we glory in Christ. What does that mean? I'm going to say something about what it means, and then I'll tell you a story and close. Um, glory means to take great, oh, this is what's special. That's what glory means. It's, it's like when it's, uh, you know, not the current version of Peyton Manning, but, you know, the Peyton Manning from three years ago, you know, before his arm really gave out. I, I recorded every Peyton Manning football game, and I didn't care if anybody ever watched it, and nobody in my family else watched it except me. And I watched every play because he's the most amazing quarterback I ever watched. That's glory. It's like glory in it. It's like, oh, yeah. I watched him flail his arms and, da -da -da -da, and call this play out and then just beat the, beat the defense. I mean, he was unstoppable. It's incredible. Glory. It's like, oh, my God. Peyton. Okay? That's why I watched every single one of those games. And so to watch this, this pathetic dude named Peyton playing the Super Bowl, like, it's like, oh, it's like, it's crazy. It's crazy. It's just crazy, okay? We, but we glory. When you come to church, do you come to church like, oh, the music is good. Pastor Jason, I hope he has a good sermon. Whatever. Oh, I love my friends. That's not glorying in Christ. Or do you show up and say, oh, Jesus. If nobody else was here, you'd come in just for Jesus. That's glory. I mean, I'll give you a really, really stupid example of Peyton. But like, Jesus is like Peyton Manning to me, like, to the infinite nth. And then I don't feel that way all the time, but that's what it means. And it can only be that way if you know that your righteousness is complete failure and yet Jesus still loved you and redeemed you and chose you. I mean, isn't that incredible? That's absolutely insane. Damnable. Your righteousness, worthless. I love you anyway. Um, I've told this story before and I'll tell it again because it's really appropriate. Um, if you heard it before, I hope you like hearing it again, okay? If you haven't, I hope it'll bless you. Um, I have a, a dear friend uh, from my old church in Philadelphia, New Life Presbyterian Church. Um, and um, his, his, his name is Ralph. Ralph is, a, is an older brother. Um, he's Caucasian. He's probably about 10, 12 years older than me, just a guess. I've never asked him what his age is. Uh, and Ralph and I, yeah, I don't know, it's just one of those things. You meet somebody in church and you just kind of click. And um, so whenever I see Ralph, you know, we both smile and, and we, even if it's a five-minute conversation, it's like this really happy conversation. Ralph has a, has a um, pretty remarkable testimony. He told me about how he got saved one day. Um, Ralph, um, Ralph grew up in Texas. And his father was an alcoholic. We would, we would today call that person high-functioning alcoholic. According to Ralph, 
his father was drunk all the time. He was one of these guys who wakes up in the morning and drinks, then drives, then works, then functions, then comes home and drinks some more. And at times, he was also an angry drunk. This is the way Ralph grew up, with a father like that. And um, one day, as, as he got old, as he, I don't remember what age he was, um, his father got cancer. It like, started affecting his brain. And um, Ralph grew up in church. Because in Texas, everybody goes to church. Everybody goes to church. Everybody does that piece of circumcision that we call church, going to church. Everybody. If you don't go to church, you're just a bad person. So Ralph grew up going to a Baptist church all his life, every week. His alcoholic father just showed up at church. But somewhere along the line, his father had moved and so forth, and, you know, and um, his father started going to this other church. It happened to be a Presbyterian church. And, um, and for the first time, I don't know, his father must have heard the gospel a thousand times. For the first time, he actually heard it at this church. And who knows, maybe it was the cancer starting to like eat away at the resistant and rebellious portions of his brain. Who knows, all right? His father actually got saved. And then he told his son to go to church. And at this time, um, addictiveness must be genetic in his family because at this time, what Ralph was a very young man, and you know what Ralph was doing most of his time? Smoking dope and just getting high all the time. So his father was an alcoholic, and he was like Mr. Mr. Like marijuana, all right? Just getting stoned all the time. And his father told him, why don't you go to this church over here? I changed him at Jesus. And his son thought that was just so weird. <laughs> so he went to this. He, it wasn't, I don't even think they were living in the same place. So he started going to this other Presbyterian church. And at first he went there because he liked this girl. He was like saying, whatever, my dad told me it was weird. Hey, I kind of like this girl. And he told this story. He said, one day the pastor was standing up. And he says, we're over here. And God is over here. And here, there's an infinite gap that we'll never be able to cross with us being good. But Jesus came, and he laid his arms out like a cross. And only by that could he take us to God. And Ralph says that when, it's because I don't know why, because when the pastor kind of like raised his arms up and did this, he goes, I got it. I got it. I said, the light came on. He goes, yeah. And he said, yeah, exactly. His face went like this. So I said, the light came on. Oh, he said, yes. Like, yeah, the room, like, lit. I get it. And Ralph got saved. And then Ralph got off the, the dope, and he got a job. And at New Life Church, he's, he's the Sunday school teacher for the four-year-olds. He's been doing that for a number of years. I don't know if he's still the four. He's awesome. When Hudson was in his class, I thought it was so great that this brother whom I love so much would be my son's Sunday school teacher when he's four years old. Let me show you to close this message. Ralph has an older brother. His older brother has no addictions. So 
father, angry alcoholic, son, Mr. like stoned all the time, right? But the old, his, he had a brother, and he, that guy did everything right. Okay, got a job, not addicted, nice family, etc. That guy won't believe in Jesus. I asked him, is your, does your brother saved? He's like, he goes to church sometimes, and he went to church every single week with us when we were growing up. But no, he doesn't trust in Jesus. See? Sometimes, until we know that when you stand before God, your righteousness isn't much better than your dope smoking. Then you know Jesus is your Savior. Then you glory in him. But the people who are just saying, if I do good, then I'm a good person, right? They just can't get it. It's like they just can't get it. And I hope today, you know, is this isn't a message you, you, you need to hear once, by the way. There's something like this thing, and it's kind of sick inside us. We all have a tendency to want to be the dog. I'm not kidding. You've been a Christian for five years or 10 or 20, and we start going, oh, but I do this, and I do this, and I do this, and this. No, don't think that anymore. There's just the glory of Jesus. And when that just shines brighter and brighter and brighter, then you, you'll go teach a four-year-olds and probably do it with more purity of heart than you've ever done anything in your life. Ralph is one of the most joyful Sunday school teachers I've ever seen. That's glory in Christ. Let's pray. This, this is so hard, Father. In fact, it's impossible. We have this thing, we want, and we want to believe. We want to believe, I can be a good person. And if I'm a good person, then, then I, if I do these good things, then I'm a good person, aren't I? But Father, that's not true. There's Jesus. And apart from him, oh, what can we offer you? This, this pathetic righteousness? But we thank you that Jesus is glorious. That the one who is almighty and absolutely holy would make himself utterly lowly and put up with, more than put up with, he would lay his life down for such crumbs such as us. And I pray, Lord, today we would glory in Jesus by the power of your Spirit. And we would be a real circumcision, the one that really, really matters, where we cross from death to life because he has put off our sin. He has put off our wretched hearts. He has put off this lying-filled minds that we have. Thank you, Jesus. We love you. We honor you. 
Oh, we glory in you. In your name we pray. Amen. Let's respond to the Lord.